Well, good evening, Mick. It's been a very long time since we've been in the same studio together. Yeah, it certainly has. Uh, I, I had to remember my way to the studio, you know. But I'm very <laughs> pleased to be back here and back here face to face doing uh, uh, interviews with uh, GTFM. Well, obviously, the last time we spoke uh, was at the beginning of the uh, the war when Russia suddenly decided to invade. I, I'm, obviously, they decided some while before. Um, but then uh, you have relatives in Ukraine. Your dad came from there. Uh, and you've been raising money, in fact, on two occasions now, I think, haven't you, through crowdfunding to buy medical equipment? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I had very serious requests for, for firstly for protective equipment, things like body armour, but also for medical equipment, the stuff for basically bullet wounds, open fractures from shrapnel wounds, uh, and also for thermal imaging uh, equipment and able to find bodies under rubble and so on. And we've seen the terrible scenes of shelling and destruction and death that has been, that have occurred as a result of uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine the response from people has been in Wales has been absolutely incredible um, the first one within five days I set a target of five thousand pounds and we I think we stopped at around forty three thousand pounds early um, we got the money out early because we just needed to get it over to get the equipment over as quickly as possible uh, second one is uh, just for a small modest one we raised several thousand pounds which again is going for medical equipment um, but I had a call just coming in this morning from the Ukrainian Mine Workers Trade Union in Pavlograd, which is in the western Donbass, so it's very close to the front line and the action that's taking place. Uh, and they've said, right, we're sending you a letter. We've got to send you a list of the things that we are going to need because they are now very much the front line. So you've got Ukrainian miners who have joined militias now who are ready to defend their country. So it is very, very grim. So I'll soon be launching a, a further appeal, hopefully hopefully in conjunction with the trade unions, uh, in order to raise, I'm sure it's going to be around medical equipment, around protective equipment, body armour and so on. But they're clearly going to fight for their freedom. When it all kicked off, I think people were really, well, amazed by how um, strongly the Ukrainians resisted. I mean, clearly they didn't want to have their country invaded, but Russia is such a massive force and here we are weeks and weeks and weeks later now and the russians are making some progress in the east because they brought massive armor to bear but uh, only a little bit of progress really i mean what's the latest situation because it is you know david and goliath isn't it yeah well i talk to family and other members regularly who are actually in the area very close to the front line or who are actually serving uh, in the forces or in the militias in one way or another. And almost the entire brunt of the uh, focus of the Soviet army is in Donbass. Uh, and it's not a conventional war. It is one which is basically about uh, artillery shelling, destruction of entire uh, cities uh, that is just sort of, even then is just barely creeping forward. Uh, that's why the calls for arms for Ukraine for the longer range howitzers and, and rocket launch systems are actually so important because if Ukraine is able to take those out it is an absolute game changer so obviously the visit uh, of Macron and from Italy and Romania etc uh, the other day was a really important gesture of support but what's more important than the gestures of support is actually getting the armaments that enable Ukraine to actually push back. In some parts of eastern Ukraine, they have done. Well, of course, the march on Kiev failed. It was expected that 
cave would fall within days, uh, and the Russian army had to withdraw from that uh, in the Kharkiv area, which is about 10 miles from the the second city of Ukraine, 10 miles from the eastern border uh, with Russia, uh, the Ukraine has actually been uh, liberating areas there. And again, in the south, towards the Black Sea, around the Kherson area. But of course, the central Donbass in Luhansk is really the main focal point, And the destruction there is absolutely uh, terrible at the moment. Well, yes, because, I mean, complete cities. We saw the film, you know, of Mariupol, really. I mean, there's just nothing left in parts of it at all. It's just blown to bits, and that's what's happening now in other parts of the same region, as you say. What do you think the end game here is? Because Putin clearly has been caught short in the sense that he obviously expected to whiz in there quickly and, and take either a chunk or all of Ukraine, you know, without too much resistance, and that seriously didn't happen. But, but he must be um, in a bit of a blind alley now because... He's not likely to back down. But on the other hand, he's got really nowhere to go. And, and the world has been incredibly quick to impose punitive sanctions, really. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there is there is really nowhere for Russia to go at the moment. Um, and there is no real basis on which you can negotiate with uh, Russia. Uh, they do not recognize Ukraine as a nation or as a state. So they're determined to obliterate it. What you actually have occurring as well is, is genocide because millions of Ukrainians are being deported from the areas that get occupied. There are liquidation squads, so people are being actually executed. So civic leaderships are being executed. It's almost like a return to some of the worst of the Stalin purge times that are taking place. I think the only way is that Ukraine has to have the sufficient armaments to enable it to push back the Russian forces. And I think it is only then uh, that some sort of peaceful outcome can ultimately be achieved. The West also has to act. It has to ensure the international law of the sea by ensuring that the Black Sea is opened up and the blockade of Ukrainian ports and the blockade of parts of the Black Sea are, are opened up. I think the next two to three months months are going to be the absolutely crucial months in terms of whether Russia is able to make any progress uh, or in greater likelihood, uh, I think that the Russian forces are then pushed back. Uh, and if that starts to happen, then maybe the situation begins to change. Surely the only hope, though, is for someone to depose Putin, isn't it? Because, I mean, there must be a massive uh, feeling. You won't necessarily see it because of all the media bans and everything else. But, you know, all of the, the, the oligarchs, everyone's lost, you know, their yachts. The whole thing has been closed down around the world. They can't be very amused about that. And and really, there's one person responsible for it all. Well, it, it, it's interesting. When, when you control the media, what's very, very clear is that Putin has support. But he has support because the complete, almost total control of the media and the message that is actually going out. Uh, many, many people are leaving Russia. Some of the brightest and the youngest people are fleeing from uh, Russia. That's been sort of evidenced uh, very, very clearly. Um, the Russian economy is in an increasingly desperate state. Uh, but interestingly, I mean, the forces, the, the soldiers that are being killed, the estimate is anywhere between thirty to 40,000 Russian soldiers killed, let alone those that are 
injured uh, are in fact not necessarily Russian soldiers. They're from the Russian Federation. There are very few of the actual forces are actually soldiers who come from Moscow, from uh, uh, St. Petersburg itself. Uh, so really, the, the, some of the poorest parts of the Russian Federation are the ones that are really taking the brunt in terms of loss of life uh, and of course whilst all this is going on there's no investment taking place in improving their uh, economy so we just have to wait and see what happens internally in Russia. I would say Putin's days are numbered but, uh, but who knows. I was thinking really particularly of the um, military commanders and other people who are just seeing their their people slaughtered in massive numbers um, and that none of that was expected and none of that you know is being explained by the military operation or whatever he's calling it not even a war well, there have been a, a lot of uh, Russian generals, senior generals, have been killed in the war. Others have been removed and arrested because of their failure in the war. Uh, there's a lot of evidence now of other officials being put under house arrest. And there clearly is something going on. There clearly is discontent within the inner circle uh, within Russia. Uh, and that really is where some sort of change has to take place because I cannot believe that all these senior people in Russia are going to allow the slaughter of their people, the total waste of the resources, but also engaging in a war that just seems totally pointless and there are increasing messages coming out from Russia where people are beginning to speak out but it is a long way to go and there's no clear indication that Putin is still anything other than secure in his position but let's hope that changes. Yes and of course the situation with NATO has changed too because if he hoped to stop people joining NATO he's had precisely the opposite effect hasn't he with Finland which has been you know neutral for many 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 years actually has a massive long border hundreds of miles long with Russia I mean they're thinking of joining NATO I mean that really puts the position in a far worse state uh, as far as Putin's concerned really. Well, his strategy has been a failure at just about every every level. And in any democratic government, a leader like that, you'd think, would have been very, very quickly removed. But, of course, Russia is not a democracy anymore. It is effectively a, a dictatorship now with control of media and all power, really, in the hands of a very small group of people. But if the intention was anything to do with NATO, and I've always thought that it's been a complete distraction with NATO, you know, Russia first sees Crimea and invaded Ukraine when Ukraine was, wasn't in NATO and didn't want to join uh, NATO. So I think that has in many ways been camouflage or substitute for really the real ambition, which is basically to seize more territory and to seize control uh, of Ukraine. But the reality is, uh, if there wasn't a reason for NATO very much beforehand, there certainly is now. More countries will join. And of course, NATO will increase its spending. NATO countries will have to increase their spending on defence. If Russia were to uh, succeed in their war, then we really are back with a new uh, Iron Curtain but what about the you know the elephant in the room what about the issue of a potential world war around this because we're so western countries are being so careful about how they're seen or their military is seen assisting ukraine and so on i mean we we are really quite a brink here aren't we yeah i mean it is you know at the moment it is being confined to a war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, with NATO countries supporting Ukraine as an independent, sovereign 
country, and that really is important. But what is really worrying, of course, are the messages that are coming out from Russia about their expansion. For example, they have forces to the west of Ukraine in Transnistria, part of Moldova. Uh, they uh, also have seized part of Georgia uh, already. And, of course, statements are being made in respect of the Baltic states. Uh, and also there have been statements coming about parts of northeast Poland. So there, there is a real risk that if Russia felt it was succeeding and would should choose to go further, then it would bring itself into direct conflict with NATO per se. Uh, and that is a danger. And I'm sure that is probably what is worrying also some of the senior Russian generals as well as to where Putin is actually taking them. Because this is not only about the destruction of the Russian economy, it's actually about the potential destruction of Russia as well, but also the risk of you know an escalated war and possibly even the use of tactical nuclear weapons. And it's very clear that NATO has placed very clear limits on any potential engagement uh, outside Ukraine itself. But look, in, in, in Ukraine itself, that's where the, the war is going to be won or lost. And that's why the calls from President Zelensky for uh, this heavier weaponry is so important, because that is what can actually uh, allow Ukraine to succeed over the next couple of months. So we have to see whether it, that equipment arrives. It has started arriving, whether it arrives in sufficient quantity and the impact it has then on the, uh, uh, the Russian forces, particularly in the Donbass area. Indeed. Okay. Well, moving away from U Ukraine, it. I mean, it, well, you can't move away from it, can you? Mm -hmm. you? You're living two lives at the moment, aren't you? You're a government minister. On the one hand, you're doing, you know, all of the work with with the cabinet here, and then you've got this going on. It it must be a very odd existence in the sense that you're on the way to the Senate, and then you'll get a call from Ukraine. Yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, I have family there. Uh, I've lost family members already to, uh, to the war, and I suspect there may be more that will be lost uh, along the way, and that is very, very tragic. So I'm in close contact with family. And, of course, we now have a large number of Ukrainians who've had to flee, who've now come to our welcome centres in Wales or to homes uh, in Wales. There's several thousand Ukrainians. And, of course, um, I've spent a bit of time going around meeting Meeting with them because they can speak Ukrainian, so language is an issue. But you know, Welsh people have been so welcoming uh, to Ukrainians, so supportive of them and their families. My, I had family members myself who came over, who managed to get visas to come over eventually to to stay with me. Um, they have now gone back because they want to be home. Um, where they are is not in the direct conflict zone. And many Ukrainians have gone back. I think for many of them, there, there are two types, really. Those for whom their cities no longer exist. They don't have homes anymore, particularly from eastern Ukraine. Mm. Uh, but I think those who really don't know when they will be going back but who want to go back and may go back in the uh, in the imminent uh, in in the imminent future so it's a very very volatile situation but we have a large number of Ukrainians I know they've been made welcome I'm going to be hosting as a senate member on the 9th of July uh, an event with civic leaders but with some of the Ukrainian families uh, just to speak with them to discuss any problems they have to welcome them and the children because many of their children will be settling in 
into Welsh schools. Uh, very interesting uh, anecdote I heard recently. There's a couple of uh, Ukrainian children in one school, and they arrived in school, and uh, all the children in the morning, they're coming there saying, Borodar, Borodar, good morning in Welsh, Borodar. Well, of course, Borodar in uh, Ukrainian means beard. So they came back and they wanted to know why all the children are running around shouting beard every morning. So, uh, But it was nice to see that some of the children being accepted and welcome into schools, and I think more of that will be happening. Has the issue with uh, the visas sorted itself out now? The, the system with visas is still difficult. There are people having difficulty getting visas or for the whole of the family, so it is not ideal. It is better, it is speedier than it was, so more have been coming through, so it is it is better, uh, but it's still not uh, ideal. And there are still real issues on the proper sort of financial support from central UK government for all the additional uh, work and support services that have to be provided by local government and by Welsh government in order to support them when they come. Many of them are intensely traumatised. I've seen that for myself. I visited with Jane Hutt, the Minister for Social Justice, one of the welcome centres, you know, and you see people who've been through appalling uh, experiences and of course as council general for wales one of the areas that i'm looking at at the moment is what support we can do in terms of gaining evidence in terms of the investigations by the international criminal court into war crimes because there's absolutely no doubt serious war crimes are taking place and i say go even further i think there is a deliberate policy now of of genocide taking place and that is something that can't be allowed to drop either well, indeed, absolutely. The situa- situation there you, you touched upon is, is UK government and money. Uh, and there's been a really a, a very long argument going on now about the levelling up fund. Mm. It would appear even um, the committee in, in Westminster has come down on, on the devolved country's side, if you like, saying that they don't really understand what the levelling up fund is doing in the sense it's meant to replace uh, EU funds and, and naturally they should be going to the countries involved. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're not. I mean, the government are very stubborn about this, of course, but, but actually there does seem to be an increasing amount of pressure on them, even from some of their own people, actually, about this. Yeah, it, it, it is about the best way to use money. We were promised in Welsh Government that Wales would not lose a penny uh, as a result of leaving the European Union. Our assessment is we are going to lose over the course of the next few years somewhere in the region of a billion pounds. Now, we are in contact with, we do have engagement, of course, with UK government. Um, but it's very clear that uh, I think one of the problems is that the use of the money has been not part of any strategic or planned economic development or regeneration, uh, that it is not being directed specifically to some of the poorest areas. And also, look, you know, be blunt about it, I, I, I think it is being politically driven to avoid uh, well, Welsh government whatsoever to go over the heads of Welsh government. Now, that may be a political objective, but the fact of the matter is it means that money isn't being best used. It's not being matched fund. It's not being part of a more consistent and strategic post to regeneration, development of infrastructure. 
it has also not gone to the areas that we think most need it. So those discussions are underway, but uh, we haven't made much progress on it. Um, we are shorter of funds than we would have been otherwise. Uh, I just hope that the government will reconsider its approach. So those discussions are underway, but it is certainly a very, very difficult situation at the moment. We've been successful in RCT, the council has, applying for funds for the Coydeley dual carriageway mm. and for the Porth Plaza and, and uh, other you know, significant projects that were on the books beforehand. There, then applications to the UK government directly from RCT have been successful, uh, thus circumnavigating the, the, the government, really. It has been confirmed by the Westminster, the UK Parliament's own select committee, uh, that a lot of his money has actually been wasted. Uh, you know, billions of pounds have been wasted. And that confirms our own view and what we said would happen if they didn't properly engage over it. I mean, I have a project, as you know, that I'm very involved in at the moment in pushing for the reopening of a railway line from Cardiff to Lantricent, you know, linking to Ponteclean and Bather. In normal circumstances, we would have applied to a European Social Fund, to European uh, Economic Development funding, uh, to support that particular project. We don't have that access anymore, so we are very much dependent on additional sources from the UK government. Um, and we will, of course, be pushing every source of funding that is possible. But it makes it much more difficult to develop strategic uh, infrastructure plans uh, when you don't have a consistent source of funding to enable that to happen. Yes, I mean, obviously, for for people like the you know the county council here, uh, being able to apply for funds and being successful for major infrastructure is great. But as you say, there's no real coordination then because it's you know it's county councils, twenty twenty two of them, applying haphazardly for uh, UK money and, and getting some. So there is some work mm. going on, but it isn't part of a, a structured plan that is being orchestrated by the Welsh government. Look, listen, absolutely, and I don't knock any councils. Well, you know, they need to go into secure or whatever funding they can get. But the problem is it's, uh, it fits into no particular plan. You know, bits of money go here, bits of money go there. Uh, when that money comes to an end, what then happens? Um, you know, we, we know that we do need specific investment in infrastructure. It's so important for the Welsh economy. Uh, and that sort of funding would have been uh, um, uh, enormously directed towards those sorts of projects. Now, if you can't actually engage with the UK government in terms of those projects, then that is a real handicap. It's a real millstone around infrastructure development. Uh, certainly, RCT Council has been absolutely tremendous in terms of the uh, the funding it is secured, in terms of the support. Is indeed have Cardiff Council, the cooperation between uh, Senate members in Cardiff West and in um, Pontypridd, which uh, I'm the Senate member, but with Cardiff Council and also with on the and Taft Council, you know, we are working together. It is a great pity at the moment that UK government doesn't quite want to engage properly in those sort of structures and those partnerships. I hope that will change and I never, never close the door on them. But we have some major plans ahead in terms of projects that we want to deliver with the Metro. Some fantastic things that are happening in uh, in Taft's Well with the, uh, uh, the maintenance and the repair unit there that's taking place. Massive investment jobs being created. Uh, new trains beginning to come on, thank God, at last. You know, beginning to start to see them. It'll be a while yet before all the new carriages and trains that we want are. But the 
reality is we've got to legislate to actually coordinate between buses uh, and trains, uh, and that means having, a, I think, a new structure for the administration of transport uh, across Wales. It means also, though, of course, we've really got to look seriously at how, how we invest in the infrastructure so that we can deliver really an integrated transport service for the, for, for the whole of Wales. And how much of that just depends on cooperation with the UK government? Because technically they're still in charge of transport, aren't they? Uh, no transport. The buses have been devolved and the internal rail system has been devolved to Welsh Government uh, only relatively recently. But of course, what we still have is the legacy of all those years. For example, with buses, you have a whole variety of bus companies, uh, many of whom compete for the same profitable routes. Uh, some areas where there are less profitable routes have lost their bus services or don't have bus services when they're needed later at night. That means sometimes people can't get to work or that the buses aren't necessarily integrated to the tr to trains and the ticketing system isn't integrated. So what we're looking at is legislation that will seek to integrate that and also indeed with the taxi services are also a vital part of our transport system. You know, you should be able to buy a ticket in one part of Wales and that ticket will enable you to get on a bus that is integrated with its arrival time with train services. You get on the train to where you go and if you need a taxi at the end and you have the one ticket that takes you all the way through, you should be able to do it contactless if necessary. You know, we're a long way from that, uh, but that is the plan. That is, I think, how Welsh Government will be looking to legislate in the future to have a you know a people's integrated transport system a um, lot of lot of investment a lot of progress being made with the metro but you know we've only had uh, control of the uh, railway system really for a couple of years now uh, and there was an enormous investment taking place in terms of Welsh government and local government resources and we are beginning to see those changes come through but I'm afraid it will be a while yet there will still be difficulties on the railway system with old stock as the new stock uh, comes in bit by bit to replace it. Yes, well, I mean, there's a lot of ground to make up in terms of PR, isn't there now? Yeah. Because Transport for Wales came in with a great big tara, you know, and the Riva yeah. Trains Wales goodbye. It's all going to be great. Uh, and of course, in the longer term, it, it is by comparison. I mean, the difference will be enormous. But in the meantime, you yeah. know, there's been quite a dip, hasn't there? And I, I, I think the people I feel most sorry for at the moment, you know, in dealing with the public, if you like, are the PR people. At, at, at Transport for Wales because you only have to look at social media and the number of enormously valid complaints that come in about overcrowding and everything you think well they can't look forward to going into work every morning at the moment Oh, listen, uh, absolutely not. And at the end of the day, if you're on a service, if you're cram-packed or if the train is cancelled or there aren't enough carriages, uh, you're not really concerned about the what the longer-term plan is. You're concerned with the be and now, the condition in which you have to travel. I understand that. And it's one of the ironies, isn't it, is that I get people who, who message me and complain about it. And I say, yeah, I absolutely agree with them. And Welsh Government agrees with you and Transport for Wales agrees with mm. you. But this is what the plan is. You know, we, we, we have the old stock, but you can't put new trains on until they are built. They are being built, so it takes time. So a lot of it is about managing expectations. I think the important thing on the message is uh, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. 
Uh, and I think people want to know that things will improve. And I, I very firmly believe they will improve. I mean, for example, coming through Pontypridd, there will be a train every five minutes. I've already noticed in parts of Pontypridd that the Pontypridd is now beginning to become, and around there, Grig and, and uh, uh, around the, the Hopkinstown area, is beginning to become a little bit of a boom area in terms of people wanting to buy properties there because the connectivity not to Cardiff, but to uh, other parts of Wales as well. You know, a train every five minutes, well, that's better than the Circle Line on London Underground. You know, uh, that'd be a tremendous uh, connectivity if we can deliver it, and I believe it will be delivered. So, um, you know, there's a lot of change coming, but change doesn't happen as quickly as we want it to be, and it doesn't happen overnight. So managing those expectations, getting the messages to people is really important. The case with the the metros, obviously, they have to wire up the track as well, don't they? Put the overhead lines and things in. It's kind of a light electric system compared to the network rail sort of electric. So it's easier, but still, it's a hell of a lot of wires to put up, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and that that work is uh, is underway. Um, you know, we made promises about electrification that were really never uh, delivered. So Transport for Wales and most government are having to deliver that uh, themselves as a, an addition. Um, uh, and of course, what we do have, of course, is a lot of old infrastructure. You know, uh, I was talking about this uh, idea of reopening the 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 former the old railway line between Cardiff and Lantrissant, and of course, uh, one of the issues is that we need massive investment in Cardiff West uh, uh, junction there you know there's really in terms of signalling in terms of track in terms of the uh, infrastructure there and uh, you know we have perhaps a total bill I, I, uh, I launched uh, we, along with uh, Mark Drakeford a report from both of us uh, about the business case for the line, how it might operate, what it might look like. So we're talking about potentially you know, half a billion pounds of investment that we need to secure to enable it to happen. But you know, these are investments that will be you know, fulfilling a, an infrastructure change that will last well over 100 years. So it is the, it is the future. We have to make the public transport provision uh, if we really want people to have an alternative to driving on the roads you know and to the congestion and all the uh, consequences that there are there we have to have a operating efficient integrated public transport system yes and being able to transport large numbers of people you know without them driving is is key to developing housing um, estates isn't it because the housing there's a lot of development in the south of our area here in, as indeed there is over the border in in cardiff and you can't really keep building unless you can whiz people in and out of work in cardiff without them all going on the road that's already congested listen it's an argument i've been putting for a long long time in taps vale we have uh, some of the largest uh, housing expansion taking place indeed an awful lot mined in cardiff west as well as anyone will know who drives through uh, uh, through to through Groyce vine and then through to landaf uh, that way uh, and uh, and of course around the sort of land Aran area, uh, we we do desperately need more housing. We have to build more housing, but we can't build housing at the expense of existing communities unless there is uh, an adequate transport system. You know, uh, we can't put build housing that people can't actually get to and from, can't access work, can't access other facilities. So we have to have the infrastructure in place, uh, and we, that means basically giving people the opportunity 
to get out of the cars and to use public transport. It means we have to have a public transport system. I think it's really exciting, the idea of bringing former railway lines back into use as part of our transport stru- structure, uh, I think is really, really exciting. And, you know, we have a railway line there. Most of it is still there. You know, um, quite shameful in many ways, the number of railway lines that have been lost over the years. Uh, but this particular one is there, and it would actually serve as a public transport conduit for areas where there is already massive housing development so it's something i've been working on for for 10 years um i doubt if i'll ever get to ride on one of the trains but uh you know you put in motion uh, the need for that investment and that infrastructure to take place and it does take years to take place but you know i'm confident it will happen so how practical is it then how much of the old track is there or, or the bed where the track was well, it's about 90% of the track is still there. The bed is there. I've walked along uh, parts of it with uh, the council leaders and with uh, Mark Drakeford, the Senate member for Cardiff West, uh, as well. Um, there are options as well now with uh, tram trains. So these are trains that can do road as well as rail. So it is a sort of light rail uh, potential option. There may be short-term options in terms of uh, designated rapid bus transit uh, uh, option in terms of investment so the investment doesn't all have to take place uh, right up front uh, so so it is there it is absolutely feasible there's been about a million pounds of public investment in terms of exploring the business case the possibilities and the options now it is still an idea it is still a possibility there is no specific plan to actually do this but what I want to do is to work to bring it to a stage where uh, we get eventually a commitment that yes this will be uh, reopened there will be a new transport uh, link uh, and that uh, uh, we'll work then to secure the funding to enable it to happen turning to more senate members Mm. which is a little bit yeah. of a, a little bit of a thorny one with with yeah, at least of course. one of the parties in, involved because um Welsh Labour have done a deal with Plaid mm. on a number of social things they have a lot of commonality on in, yeah. in their policies and so on one of them is having more senith members now i remember um having a conversation with you years ago now about why you thought we should have more. I mean, obviously, it's not been politically expedient, I don't think, to to, to wave that flag uh, for a while, (laughs) for all sorts of reasons to do with trust in politicians. But you told me at at the time, I recall, that it was actually the amount of committee work that as more legislation and more powers come over to the Welsh Government, then a lot of your work, you know, that we don't see necessarily Mm. because we just see the Senate TV and so on, but actually a lot of your work as Senate members is in committee and that is why you need more people. Well, I mean, what has happened since the what was the National Assembly of Wales was set up in 1999, it is transformed into a parliament. It has enormously more responsibilities. I mean, we've just been talking about transport, buses, uh, about the rail infrastructure, the economic development aspects to that, as well as all the issues around education, health, and so on. Uh, and of course, Wales, when it was when the assembly was set up, of course, had the smallest number of any of the nations, far less proportionately than Scotland, Northern Ireland, and in fact, any parliaments around the world. Now, it is a parliament now because we now have to legislate. We legislate in a wide range of areas 
Uh, we also have to deal with legislation that comes from the UK uh, Parliament. Uh, and of course, it's a question of good governance. And I, I listen, I fully accept if I go out in the street and say to most people, you know, do you want more politicians? Uh, they'll think I'm a bit bonkers. The reality is, though, do you want good governance? Do you want effective governance? Do you want government to be accountable to the wishes of the people? You know, and with 60 people, it is just not possible now within the resources, uh, the, the time that's available and the responsibilities that there are. The number of MPs is in Wales is being reduced from 40 to 32. I think now is the time actually to be standing up and to be saying, yes, we do need to increase the size of the Senate. Uh, if we really do want to improve and to increase the level of the governments and accountability. One of the difficulties you have, of course, is that, look, if you take the presiding officer, deputy presiding officer out of it, the 14 members of the government, effectively, you effectively have a working Senate, the working parliament, of around 35 or 40 people at the very, very most. The committee structures, which is really where all the groundwork is done, is about checking. It's like in the in the legislation we've introduced on housing. You know, it's dealing with the landlords, gaining with the evidence them, the residents. It's checking, scrutinising legislation to make sure that it actually works. It's getting out and engaging within the community and speaking to those communities. It is also about having enough people who can develop over the years that degree of specialism and understanding of some of these really complex areas you know it's not just a case of being sat there uh, and here comes a report do you want to vote for it do you not want to vote for it uh, it is essential that welsh parliament members senate members uh, actually have a high degree of expertise for example in in railway lines in the railway infrastructure all the issues connected with transport and the integration of that uh, same in connection with with health economic development environment an enormous area you see the flooding we've had you know the understanding the complications of uh, the integration between rivers between the climate change between all the environmental measures that have to be taken so I, I think it is you know it's a question of you know you, you can know the price of everything and the value of nothing as uh, Aniron Bevan said uh, and I think it's a question of do we really value uh, our democracy in Wales I think it ultimately pays for itself because I think it leads to a better use of finances it leads to better scrutiny and I think it works too basically so that you have a much better and a much more accountable government and parliament. The people who are protesting against it are, are the Welsh Conservatives um, vehemently so uh, a lot of tweeting from their yeah. um, from their leader recently about why we don't need more Senate members but we do need more whatever but, but they are vehemently is this because they um, don't want any more devolution. I think they feel there's quite enough. Uh, you know, obviously you can't speak for them, but they're not here to speak for themselves either. So w what are the arguments you hear? Well, listen, I can tell you that individual uh, Conservative members uh, of the Welsh Senate, when I speak to them, uh, they actually recognise and agree that we need more Senate members. Uh, and the reason they do, they, they, they agree with that uh, is because they have to sit in those committees. They have to do the work. You know, they are the ones who have to get up at six in the morning to actually read the papers for a nine o'clock committee, sit there all through the day, then go into a parliamentary session, then have etc. So there is a recognition there. So I think it is one really of, of politics and it is one of 
of uh, what is the most popular position to be. Listen, they're doing their role, their job in terms of uh, opposition, in terms of uh, holding to account, of putting the arguments and so on. And yes, there's always a bit of politics because, uh, you know, my view is they've latched onto the view that there may be a cohort of people who, for whom uh, will are very receptive to the idea and the easy populism of we don't need more politicians you know let's have some more nurses well listen it isn't one or the other you know you can you can uh, well have both and one doesn't actually enable the other to happen in any event so i think the official position uh, that the Welsh Conservatives present is probably different to what i hear on the uh, at the coal face of the Welsh parliament if i put it like that the point is uh, that you you made to me several years ago is is that there is a lot of consensus in fact that you have to when you come forward with new legislation it has been through committee stages they are all party committees and obviously now there are more welsh conservatives around than there were earlier as well yes. so so technically they'd have a little more influence i suppose but you all have to come to a consensus uh, study the information and and do, as you say do all the homework really it would be surprising i think to the public how much consensus there is because you have to get consensus before you can draft new legislation and so on. And so a lot of your work with Conservatives and other parties is is in discussion that you there's give and take and at the end of the day you come up with something you hope you can back. Yeah, listen, the, the, the common position amongst whether it's Conservative, Plaid or Labour, uh, Welsh Parliament members is they have a common duty to hold the government to account, uh, to look at decisions that have been taken by the government. And forget, the government is separate from uh, the, the parliament. So parliament's job is to hold government to account, to get government to explain what it's doing, why it's doing, what the outcomes are. And that's an important job, whichever political party you're in. So there is an enormous amount of consensus. When it comes to legislation coming forward as well, um, there is also a high degree of common agreement. And when where there isn't agreement, often there is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes to try and achieve a common uh, agreement. And of course, there are areas where ultimately there's disagreement and there are different positions. And and that's called, you know, that is democracy. And that is a very important part of the Welsh Senate as well, that there are there is an opposition there that is challenging uh, and that uh, government uh, has to explain account and ultimately account in elections for what it does. Uh, and of course, we've just had had an election last May, uh, and of course we now have a, another Welsh Labour government, but one that didn't need to, but has actually gone into a cooperation agreement with another political party, with Plaid Cymru, because again, there are a large number of common areas that we want to get through as quickly as possible. And if we're in agreement, why don't we work together? So the fact that we will be expanding free school meals for primary school teachers, because we will be able to get a consistent commitment to budget, to finance for that, that seems to me is really important. The fact that, you know, Wales will be the first place in the, in the UK where uh, all primary school pupils will have free school meals. I think with the all the issues we see about the cost of living crisis, the growth of food banks, I think that is something that couldn't possibly be more timely than, uh, uh, than it is. Well, of course, the situation with food banks is that they now can't get enough yeah. supplies. I mean, this whole cost of living thing is going yeah. kind of out of control, really. I mean, where do you see it all going? 
Uh, well, it's very difficult, and there's no doubt that the strains and stresses on families is, is great, uh, that some of the poorest in our communities are struggling, that many of the people who you would not have put within that sort of poorer section are now struggling, and you've got more and more people who previously wouldn't have even considered the idea of going to a food bank, who are having to do so. And one of the big issues, of course, is energy. And there are real questions being asked as to why the increase in energy prices in the UK is so much higher than in most of the rest of Europe. I think energy is one of the really big issues because the moment people are put into a position where they're having to choose between whether to heat their homes uh, or to feed themselves or to feed their children. You know, we are the fifth richest country in the world. Uh, the idea that we could possibly have families uh, who either go cold or go hungry, uh, for me, is an abomination. You know, uh, for me, again, it always comes down to the fact that it's not about that we don't have enough wealth in the country, but it's where that wealth is situated in too few hands uh, and not fairly redistributed. And that's why, you know, the taxation system needs to be changed, why we need greater policies that actually redistribute, redistribute wealth and give guarantees to people in terms of uh, earnings in work, conditions in work, but also entitlement to a decent home and electricity and food. The energy system is, at the moment, uh, entirely controlled by market forces, which, yeah. which uh, cynically, you could say, is actually to do with speculation and speculative purchasing and nervousnesses and various other things that seem to affect stock exchange and so on. It's not real. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the situation isn't changing materially. Obviously, there are issues to do with the Ukraine war and the supply of raw materials, but we're not too dependent here in Britain on their gas or their oil, actually, it's a tiny percentage. So you wouldn't think that the war in Ukraine would have a massive effect in Britain, but yet it is, because we're tied to this world marketplace, which, which appears totally random in how it applies higher prices. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's right. Um, I think we also have a national grid system that, in my view, is broken. We have a fragmented energy system. You know, I, I think the um, uh, privatisation that took place of basic services like gas and electricity and water have been an absolute uh, disaster. The idea that you have competition in those areas means that you can't uh, provide for the needs of people in any sort of planned way. Um, there's no doubt the energy companies are making enormous profits and that's why a windfall tax is so important. But a windfall tax gives you some sort of temporary respite. What we need is a longer term solution and uh, we also need really to be able to produce far more renewable energy. You know, we have such capacity capacity within Wales to do that. But what we don't have is control over the energy price, the price of unit, uh, unit prices of energy, which enable you to secure the investment, the guarantee for investment of those who might invest in things like the, the, the tidal barrage and so on. So, um, you know, the, these are areas that I would like to see further thought about how they could be far more community-based and devolved. But there's no doubt the government has to take action to give at least guarantees that people won't have their electricity or their gas disconnected if they can't afford to pay the bills, certainly this winter. 
Looking at the your provision of power, you mentioned the tidal lagoon idea there. Mm-hmm. It appears to be going ahead on its third model now in Swansea, almost entirely by accident, in the sense that when UK government decided the unit price of the electricity would be too high to subsidise it and said no back in Theresa May's mm-hmm. day, they went back to the drawing board, came up with another plan that didn't quite make it. And the third plan involves no government investment at all, apart from the fact that they've now got windfall money from from Boris Johnson's government, funnily enough, to support the lagoon. And what it's for is the battery plant that is in the middle of it, so making batteries for sustainable cars and so on. And the irony of this is that the coal because you need coal apparently to make you know for the carbon i, I didn't mm. realize this but apparently co- coal is only bad when you burn it yeah. when you use it to put in batteries for electric cars then it's suddenly an asset and by by sheer coincidence there's a coal mine producing high very high grade coal which there were attempts to close down recently by various politicians. We won't go into the detail of that, but it's only up the road from Swansea. So completely haphazardly, the Lagoon project is now going ahead with all of the electricity it's going to generate and everything else because a way has been found to do it which doesn't involve um, you know, central government subsidy, although now it has some randomly, mm. Uh, which was the UK government weren't prepared to give it before when it was an electricity project. But entirely by accident almost and by by geographical fate, uh, something is actually now happening. But when you look at our island nation, a lot has been made of that through Brexit and so on. We're surrounded by coasts, (laughs) being an island nation. And the one thing you can be very sure of is there are two tides a day. Uh, they don't stop blowing when the weather changes, like wind does. Um, you know, when the sun goes in, the solar panels don't work so well. They do work, but not as well. It, it does make you wonder why massive investment isn't going into, um, you know, sea, tidal power, really, around the UK. Uh, well, I've never been able to understand that, and I think I just put it down to the fact that we fragmented our energy industry so you don't have any coordinated plan. You know, post, post-Second World War, you had the integration, didn't you, of a publicly owned electricity uh, uh, organisation, Central Electricity Generating Board, uh, the same with uh, gas, but the same with the power stations, and the same with the railways. Uh, and so, the you know, the, the coal was produced, it was transported on the railways, railways it went into the electricity power stations coordinated planned and it delivered Uh, of course once you break that up and fragment it uh, what you have is short-term interest and the short-term interest is basically the maximization of profit from year to year Uh, and that's why i think you have this sort of really this this fragmentation that's taken place uh, and this dysfunction within our energy system it means also you don't have any cohesive planning to the development of your long-term renewable energy needs and of course the tidal plan is i mean it's been around for, for for decades now you know and there's so much potential to it uh, you know it shouldn't have to go through this sort of system to get to where it is now it still of course has an enormously long way to go and of course you're right about uh, Ab- Ab- Pergam colliery um, of course which either produces coal for 
the steel works which is uh, which is needed but where a lot of its production is actually not for thermal burning so it is not about uh, you know polluting the atmosphere and our carbon footprint and so on it is actually applied in carbon either for things like batteries but also for things like water filtration so the you know i think there needs to be a lot more thought uh, about that and of course engagement in terms of you know i don't think we ever want to go back to the idea of burning coal for for energy and we don't need to you know we've moved away from that but it doesn't mean there might not be some benefit to that resource uh, which actually ironically will facilitate and help the um, the renewable energy sector so uh, uh, that's something where obviously uh, a lot of work is going on at the moment in the last few minutes now, uh, because obviously we we spent quite a lot of time talking about key key issues. What other things, you know, particularly from the from the constituency here, uh, are you are you involved in? Well, I I think it's really worth remembering, isn't it, the fortieth anniversary of the Falklands War, uh, because uh, so many of the Welsh Guards that lost their lives or were injured, you know, the impact on Wales. I can't believe really how it is 40 years on, how those years have gone. And uh, I've been doing a bit of work with some of the veterans organisations in the constituency. I mean, some of them have actually been fantastic because they've been raising funds uh, to uh, support Ukraine. And that has been, you know, perhaps as uh, ex-army, they understand what is going on in terms of conflict and what, what people actually need. And they've been tremendous. But it was also a great honour. I mean, I, I went to the 40th anniversary uh, uh, at the uh, memorial uh, to the Galahad uh, in uh, in Anderson Harrod Park in Pontypridd, and it was nice to see so many people there. Uh, I attended an event uh, in Landaff Cathedral, which was again a memorial with uh, a lot of veterans from uh, uh, the Welsh Guards, and it's a memorial about not forgetting those people who lay down their lives. In war, it's about remembering the appalling nature of war and the importance of peace. Uh, but it was a great honour to be there with members of the Welsh Government, members of the Welsh Guards, uh, members of the UK Government, civic leaders, uh, and uh, you know that people don't forget the, the sacrifice that so many people have made. And of course, Saturday is Armed Forces Day. And I think in the current climate internationally, again, I think we have perhaps a greater awareness of those who've been involved in conflict uh, and those who might be involved in conflict uh, in, in the future. So I think that's been something that's been very, very um, important. Uh, I think the other thing is, of course, um, uh, the Jubilee uh, has been a, an event. Uh, I, I can't claim to be the world's greatest um, monarchist, I have to be honest about that, but wasn't it fantastic to see people getting together? And I, of course, did join a uh, a, a Jubilee party uh, in the Tonnerevela area where people were sat outside talking to one another for almost the first time. In fact, one couple got up and danced and then he quickly uh, developed a hamstring injury, you know, so uh, you know, perhaps that's what comes of not uh, preparing and not having uh, practice over the uh, over the COVID uh, period. But I think that's been really important for certain some parts of our uh, community uh, as well. And uh, I think the other thing that was great, uh, it was a great pleasure to go to was, of course, um, I went to the Wales-Ukraine football match. And isn't it absolutely incredible for Wales to have qualified uh, for the first time since 1958 that Wales will be 
in the World Cup. And of course it was uh, it was a difficult game for me because I desperately <laughs> wanted Wales to win. Uh, Wales did win. Um, and then I wanted Ukraine to win for totally different yes, reasons yes, because it was important. But wasn't it fantastic you know, to see Gareth Bale and the Welsh team that at the end of the game they went over to the Ukrainian fans and then uh, the Ukrainian fans as they're leaving the stadium being applauded by uh, Welsh fans. I think that was incredibly moving and such a testament uh, to uh, Welsh soccer and to Welsh friends and the support that Welsh people generally have been giving uh, to Ukraine. And wasn't it also fantastic? I did an interview uh, a little while back on a programme that I hope will be on S4C soon uh, with David Ewan uh, on Imar Ohid. Uh, you know, we're still here. And of course, I was saying, of course, that's quite relevant to, you know, a line from the Ukrainian national anthem, which is really that, you know, Ukraine is still here. Um, but uh, hearing it sung in the stadium, almost becoming the football anthem and to hear fans whether they speak Welsh whether they don't or whatever uh, singing the song in harmony I, I think it's it is so fantastic for Wales for the image of Wales for the unity of Wales and I think for despite everything you know the optimism that's there when Wales win the World Cup well, Mick, on that note, I think we'll, we'll draw it to a close. It's been uh, great having a chat with you again in the studio. And I think we're planning to do this every month from now on. So, so uh, thank you so much. 